Uh, I will not be as interesting as the announcements, but uh, we'll be okay. So again, uh, we're doing, as, as you know, we're doing a, a whole discussion of assisted reproduction, fertility technologies. And uh, last week we covered fairly quickly, there's a lot more that one could talk about, uh, things like egg donation, uh, gestational surrogacy, and whole surrogacy. Be sure you know the, the idea of the uh, terminology here. Egg donation is where, let's assume you have a husband and a wife. The wife is capable of carrying a child, but she's not ovulating properly. So somebody donates an egg. Uh, you have husband sperm fertilizes donor egg in vitro. And then if there's a successful embryo, it is transplanted to the womb of his wife. And nine months later, you have a child. That's simply called egg donation. Gestational surrogacy is exactly the opposite. That's where the wife does ovulate, but she doesn't have, she had a hysterectomy or doesn't have, uh, not able to carry the baby for whatever reason. So what then happens is, husband's sperm fertilizes wife's egg, which is then transferred to a surrogate who carries it for nine months. And then there's an agreement that the surrogate is supposed to, uh, sometimes she backs out, and there's a lot of legal problems, but the surrogate is supposed to deliver it uh, to the couple who then legally adopt it. That's how it works legally. That's called gestational surrogacy. Full surrogacy is where both the egg and the womb are the donor woman. That would mean that a woman, donor, donates egg, fertilized by husband's sperm, and she carries the baby. That's called, uh, so, so when you hear the word surrogate mother, be sure you have to understand that there are two different types of surrogate mothers. There are gestational surrogates, where the egg comes from the wife, and then there's full surrogacy, where the donor is both the egg supplier and the womb supplier. And then you can have a fourth category, split surrogate, or a third category of surrogacy, split surrogacy, and that is where one woman donates the egg and the other woman donates the womb, right? Uh, but the common denominator is the wife is not a participant directly. So what we looked at therefore is, again, I'm reviewing a little bit, uh, we have four uses, well actually there are five uses of third parties in the process. There is sperm donation, which is really the husband contributing, not the husband, I'm sorry, a donor contributing. And then vis-a-vis -vis the woman, there are three possibilities. There's egg donation, there is gestational surrogacy, there is full surrogacy, actually four possibilities, and split surrogacy. Okay, so you should be able to know what all of those issues are. Now, let me point out that the main halachic issue, who is the mother, is not a question in full surrogacy. In full surrogacy, you obviously know who the mother is. The halachic mother is the donor, because the donor gave both the egg and the womb. There is no question who the mother is. So if that person is a non-Jew, the kid is a non-Jew that has to be converted. If that person is a Jew, the child is a Jew. However, with respect to the other variations, whether it's egg donation, uh, whether it's gestational surrogacy, or whether it's split surrogacy, you will have a big machlokas in halacha how is motherhood defined? All of us know the obvious rule that 
your Jewish identity depends on your mother. That, that, that's a well-known idea. That's called matrilineal descent. And uh, religion, Orthodox Jews, Torah, Torah Jews believe that that goes all the way back to Moshe Rabbeinu. Interestingly enough, let me just point out a little, little digression. Now, the Reform Movement claims that matrilineal descent was a later invention. They claim it was invented in the time of Ezra, which is pretty long ago anyway, but they, they say it does not go back to Moshe. Well, like many statements that are not true, there's, all, there's actually a partial truth in non-true statements. And that is, Ramban actually writes, the great Ramban, Rav Moshe ben Nachman, actually writes, before the Torah was given at Sinai, Jewish status was based on father rather than mother. And it was only from the Sinaitic revelation onwards that it was redefined as matrilineal. So when the Reform Movement says the original Jewish practice was paternal based, that actually is true. It was the practice before Matan Torah. And with this, Nachmanides offers a strikingly beautiful interpretation of a story in the Torah. Do you remember there's a story in the Torah about a man and it says that his father was an Egyptian and his mother was Jewish and he blasphemed God, he cursed God and Moshe did not know what to do, what the punishment for that crime was and Moshe put him in prison, a holding cell and he asked Hashem what the halacha is and the halacha is that uh, for blasphemy you actually got stoning. That was the punishment. Stoned to death. Stoned stone to death. Yeah, 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 yeah. Stoning to death. And uh, now again, you have to have warning. You have to have all sorts of rules, but that's the rule. Now, Ramban says, "How could Moshe not know the law? Didn't God give all the mitzvahs at Mount Sinai? What did Moshe not know?" So listen to what Ramban says. Ramban says a fascinating thing. Moshe knew the halacha that if a Jew blasphemes, the punishment is stoning. But Moshe wasn't sure if this guy was Jewish or not Jewish because he was born from a non-Jewish father and a Jewish mother. And after Mount Sinai, Judaism would be defined by the mother. But the question is, how do you apply that to people who were born before Sinai? In other words, the question of grandfathering. Uh, in other words, what is the halachic status of somebody with a non-Jewish father where under the old definition? they would be non-Jewish, but under the new definition, they would be Jewish. Did that apply retroactively? Meaning, Moshe was not in doubt about the law. He knew the law was a Jew who blasphemes gets stoning. Moshe's doubt was, is this person a Jew or a non-Jew? Fascinating, because the question becomes, from now on, anyone that's born from a non-Jewish father is certainly a Jew. That's true, from now on. The question was, how did that apply to people who were born before Mount Torah? So, when the Reform Movement says that matrilineal descent is an innovation, uh, in, in a limited sense, that is true. It's an innovation from Mount Sinai onwards, and it was not the original halacha that applied to Am Yisrael. Okay. Uh, but be it as it may, going back to the fertility thing, egg donation, gestational surrogacy, and split surrogacy, the question becomes, okay, you're Jewish if your mom is Jewish. Okay, we know that, we accept that. Question is, who is called your halachic mother? Is your halachic mother the genetic egg donor? Because that is your DNA coming from 
that person? Or is the halachic mother the person who carried you for nine months? That's very important. Because in the case of egg donation, even though the Jewish wife carried the baby for nine months, if the egg donor is non-Jewish, the child would need conversion. And vice versa, uh, in the case of gestational surrogacy, if the egg donor is the wife who's Jewish, but a non-Jew carried the baby for nine months, the baby might need conversion depending on which way you look. And as you understand, everyone understands that egg donation and gestational surrogacy are the same question. It's simply flipped around. In the case of egg donation, it's the wife that carried the baby, but the egg came from another source. In the case of gestational surrogacy, it is the wife that gave the egg, and the baby was carried by another source. It's the same, it's the same question. There is no difference in how you analyze the problem. It's just a flip around of that. Uh, and similarly, with split surrogacy, if one is Jewish, one is not Jewish, you know, you would need to analyze it based on the same situation. In full surrogacy, there is no Shiloh. Full surrogacy, you know, we know, whoever the full surrogate is, that's going to be the, the mother. So that's not, that, that particular case is not a question. Yeah. Why was, like, Sarah and Hagar and Yishmael, like, why was that not a situation of surrogacy? Because it seems like they didn't have the technology to do surrogacy at the time. But it seemed like when Sarah gave Hagar to Avraham, she said, like, I don't know, it, it seems like you could have interpreted it as a situation. Well, as a matter of fact, surrogacy. yeah, as a matter of fact, a lot of, yeah, a lot of, uh, modern medical ethics writers look at the example of Sora saying to Avram, I will give you my maidservant Hagar and I will be built up through her. Uh, they actually analogize uh, Hagar to a full surrogate uh, in many ways. And yeah, uh, exactly right. Uh, you, in other words, it was Avram. Avram had actual intercourse with Hagar, but other than that, basically, Hagar is both the egg contributor and the gestational mother, and the child was, uh, well, it's not really clear. Sarah never really raised Ishmael, so in that sense it's a little different, but at least her plan was, her plan was, it didn't come to fruition, that she would kind of be the acting mother for Ishmael. So you can look at it like gestational surrogacy, but, but again, I'm, I'm sorry, not just say full surrogacy, but remember, full surrogacy Another word for full surrogacy is just early adoption because genetically the Jewish wife has no connection at all to the child just as Sarah had no connection to Ishmael. So whatever connection she has would, be, would simply be that of an adopted mother. So you're right. You can call it full surrogacy and call it early adoption. Yeah. When, when she sends Hagar out in the very beginning when Hagar gets like arrogant, she sent Hagar out with Ishmael then also? No, Yishmael was not born yet. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, the first time Hagar was sent out she was, was before Yishmael was born. And then she came, then uh, Hashem. Was she giving up on the chance to... Uh, yeah, because uh, she basically... Well, well uh, maybe, there would, maybe, maybe uh, Sarah thought there might be another shifcha that might be more deserving. Mm -hmm. But uh, even if Sarah was giving up, I think there's an important lesson here that Sarah dreams and yearns to have children, but if she sees that Hagar, at that point, was a destructive influence on the holiness of the home, then she'll give that up. The holiness of the home is going to be more important. 
So the first time uh, Hagar went, uh, she uh, there was no Yisrael was not born yet. It was only the the second time. She was pregnant though. Huh? Say again. She was pregnant. She was pregnant. Yeah, yeah. But it does actually. But it doesn't say. The truth is, it does not say that Sarah ch- uh, expelled her. It actually says Sarah was tough on her, and she left. And she left on her own. It was only the uh, later that she demanded, Sarah demanded Avram send out Hagar and Yishmael. Right? That and was at later. that point, she clearly has no intention of Yishmael being her son, right? That's, I think that's so. I mean, she realized that uh, this is not the way. Hashem made a promise that there would be a seed of Avram that would carry on the mission of godliness in the world. And Sarah may have had a supposition that perhaps the surrogacy of Yishmael might meet that standard and then she sees it's obviously not the case, so there's no point in continuing uh, with this. Okay. Although, again, the Midrashim make a point. You know, there's a famous, to digress for a moment, you know, Chazal typically speak of the four exiles. I'm sure you've discussed this in other, other classes too. The Babylonian exile, and then the Persian exile, and the Greek exile, and now we're in the Roman exile because the Romans destroyed the Second Temple and we haven't recovered from that. But according to some Midrashim, there is a fifth stage of exile, and that is the exile of Yishmael. And that's quite, quite amazing, because Yishmael is the father of the Arab nations. And Chazal essentially predicted, really thousands of years ago, 2,000 years ago, that before Mashiach comes, even the power of Rome, which is Western civilization, is going to be weakened by the powers of Yishmael, which are really the Arab civilizations. And we see this, of course, because we live in a world of Islamic uh, terrorism, and uh, you know the Western countries are cowering in fear. Uh, if you go to Europe, Europe is, is literally falling apart, uh, whether it's England, whether it's Germany, whether it's France, whether it's Spain, whether it's Italy. Even the United States, the United States is a little better, but the United States too, if you think about, uh, you know, and people like to say, you know, the numbers of Muslims, there are what, one billion Muslims in the world. So people like to say, it's unfair to talk about Muslims as terrorists, 95% of them are good and righteous people. Okay, the Seder, let's say 99% of them are good and righteous people. What is 1% of a billion? 1% of a billion is 10 million. <laughs> so, so when you're dealing with numbers of that size, you know, ten, uh, you know, million, you know, so it's a very, very scary thing. Now, Chazal identified that the Acharis Hayomim at the end of days, our greatest enemy, will be Yishmael. And it actually says Yishmael is the most dangerous of all of the exiles, because Yishmael. Again, I'm digressing, but I think it's an interesting point. Yishmael is the only nation besides Yisrael that has Hashem's name in their national identity. Aleph Lamed is one of Hashem's names. Yisrael, Yishmael, and even the word Yishmael, Yishmael is two words, what is it? Yishmael, God will listen. Yishmael, even though Yishmael was the wayward son that was excluded, He's still connected to Avram in a certain way. Yishmael has circumcision, bris mila. Yishmael has the power of prayer. They pray five times a day. Uh, there's sneas, modesty, and, you know, there's a certain merit that they have. So as a result, 
Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer, which is a medrash, says Yishmael is much more dangerous to us than the people that come from Asaph, because Asaph represents the people who reject God. And they could be awful enemies, whether it's Hitler, whether it's uh, communism. Those are awful, awful enemies. But ultimately, they have no power because they represent materialism. And they don't represent any element of holiness. Yishmael represents what you might call the dark side, the Sitra Achra, the dark side of holiness. And the dark side of holiness is a much more potent force. You know, it sounds like a contradiction, the dark side of holiness, but it's a much more potent force than the absence of holiness. And as a result, Yishmael cannot be defeated by physical means. Those who represent physicality can be defeated by physicality. But those who represent even a perverted spirituality can only be defeated by a true spirituality. And that's why uh, Yishmael, so the my reason I'm digressing is to make the point that in a sense, Yishmael did remain a son of Abraham even though Yishmael was, was sent away. And that is why there's a koach in Yishmael. And I think about this a lot. You know, uh, I, I live where I, or Sameach is on the Shimon HaTzadik stop on the light rail. I don't know if you know your way around. And that's the boundary. That's Highway 1. It's right across the street is East Jerusalem. And last year, was it two years ago, uh, there were Arabs who were driving cars who would literally turn their car into pedestrians who were waiting for the train. Just, you know, and so the police built barriers, they just did different things. But you know, when you live in a world like that, uh, there's no way it's, you, know, you can be you know, absolutely secure, because anything can happen. Somebody, you know, you could be crossing the street at a red light and somebody might just decide to go ahead and keep on going. Right? There's nothing, there's no way you can protect yourself. You can have you know, maximum police, you can have the army all over the place. But Hashem is really telling you that this is an enemy over which you have no control at all. There's nothing you can do. Now, you might go crazy. You might commit suicide in despair. Or you might realize that when there's nothing we can do, then by definition, we have no one to rely upon except HaKadosh Baruch And so that's the nature of the enemy of Ishmael. Yeah. Um, why did Abraham take Hagar back when Sarah passed away and they had like 10 kids, I think? Yep, they had, they had children. Uh, Hagar, of course, acquired a new name uh, her name was Keturah, it says in the Chumash. And uh, Rashi explains Keturah is the same language as Ketores, which is incense. That Hogar's deeds after Sarah died were so pleasant and righteous, it was like incense. So apparently, the banishment of Hogar caused her to repent and rethink her life. And she became a very virtuous woman, a woman who was so virtuous that uh, Avram would take her back. He did have children, the Midianites. The kids aren't so great either. <laughs> they also turned out to be enemies of the Jewish people. So, uh, but nevertheless, Hagar herself is considered to be a righteous, uh, righteous person. And it could also very well be that remember, Sarah died uh, uh, after Yitzchak passed the Akedah. So essentially, the concept would be whatever negative influence Hagar would have was already, Yitzchak was now immune from that. It's like a person saying, I'm not going to marry until my son is set up, so to speak. So it was only after uh, Yitzchak had achieved the highest pinnacle that Avram could then reconnect to, to Hagar in that, in that way. But again, just to be sure you understand, the difference between the Chumash and the Medish, the Chumash does not explicitly say 
he took Hagar. It says he took Keturah. So if you read the Pesukim literally, it was just another woman. But, but you are correct. Hazal identified that other woman as, Keturah, as Hagar. Yet she had, she had, yet she had children. Yeah, well, that many. Ten more. Ten yeah, more. Not ten. Sarah was like really old, like biggest miracle. Mm-hmm. That she didn't have a child. Yeah, yeah. They ask you, yeah, that's a good question. But but uh, some some unfortunately simply say, once Hashem made the miracle for Sarah, it became easier for other older women to give birth as well. So it's no longer such a miracle. It, it became I wouldn't call it a commonplace, but it became. Uh, a little easier. She brought the Shepa, she brought the divine bracha into the world, and then all sorts of people could benefit from it. In fact, the Ebenezer brings a raya because we could prove, I don't want to get into the technicalities of the proof, that when Yocheved gave birth to Moshe Rabbeinu, she was 130 years old. Mm-hmm. Now, the Torah does not make a point of that at all, but it makes such a big deal that Sarah was 90. Yocheved was a much bigger miracle. It's not because Sarah literally, Sarah had made much more com- complications. It wasn't just her age. It well, that's a good. That's a, that. See, that's a good question. According to Chazal, Sarah didn't have a womb, which yeah, of course yeah. would make it would make it a, a real supernatural miracle. So on the other hand, on the other hand, that's not what the Torah says. The Torah does not uh, say her miracle was she didn't have a womb. The Torah says her miracle was her age. So you are correct that Sarah had other problems, but the to- the one the Torah emphasizes is her age, and uh, the problem is that there were women who were older that had kids, but, but the answer is, as I said, she brought this blessing into the world, and once she brought the blessing into the world, everybody could benefit. This is the nature of, of how tzaddikim uh, function. Tzaddikim bring blessing into the world, and then even the people who are not so righteous can benefit and be lifted up uh, by, by the tzaddikim. Well, well, <laughs> I mean, obviously, if Sarah didn't have a womb, uh, miraculously, Hashem gave her back a womb. I mean, we, we assume that there was a womb when Yitzchak was born, <laughs> right. but, but uh, Hashem just gave it back there. You know, it, uh, it happened. It was a supernatural miracle, huh? Didn't she look beautiful the rest of her life? Yes, she did. She did. Because it says that yes. the, all that stuff about Abra, um, something about, um, we learned it in a context of, was it that the Malachim were not allowed to, someone wasn't allowed to see her because she had just for the first time started menstruating and she yes. was 90 years old. So I yes. don't even, she wasn't even like, eligible to be married, really, because she couldn't have children. Yeah. Until she was, she had her first period when she was like 90. So she well, had a child that didn't have a woman. Well, she got. She must have gotten. She must have gotten a womb. We're not saying. We're not saying she had a child without a womb. In other words, she did not have a womb. So when she had a child, God gave her a womb. God just put it put it in there. You know, uh, that was a great, uh, great, great miracle. Okay. Um, I don't know how we got onto this. I totally, I totally lost lost track. Oh, Yishmael Circus. Okay, very good. That was a little side point. That was a good point. Okay. Now, uh, you'll remember, just to remind you, you'll remember that uh, we talked about the fact that when you use a surrogate, by the way, in Hebrew, the modern Hebrew term for surrogate is a cute term. Uh, it's called aim pundakait. Now, a pundak is an in, and a pundakait is, an, is a female innkeeper. So uh, we call a surrogate the innkeeper. She kind of you know, keeps the, 
you know, gives the baby a room for nine months, you know, uh, at a fairly hefty price. So she's called Aim Pundakait, the innkeeper mother, uh, the gestational mother. But you'll remember just the bottom line, just, just to, to remind you, that number one, let's first talk about gestational surrogacy. If the surrogate is non-Jewish, the child should have a conversion. Number one. Number two, the, yeah. Yes, yes, or at least it'd be, it would be a doubt because uh, because it's machlokas if the egg donor, you know, if the, if the Jewish mother, meaning this would be a conversion out of doubt, meaning maybe the child is Jewish because the egg is from the wife, or maybe the child is not Jewish because it was carried by a surrogate. So the conversion requirement is a doubtful conversion, and therefore we're, we're in doubt whether the person has a tribe or not. Well, you know, you can't, you know, I understand what you're saying, but you can't decide this question because it'll produce a, be a, a nicer result. If, you know, there's, uh, there, there's an objective, objective uncertainty how we define a mother. Now, if it's objectively uncertain, we have to be strict on all sides. And therefore, we can't just say, oh, we would like uh, to make him Jewish because that way he has a, a tribe. You see, you can't, uh, you can't decide a halacha like that. You have to treat it like a doubt. So again, I just want to give you the guidelines here. So number one, if the surrogate is not Jewish, the child must have a gior misafek. That means a conversion out of doubt. Does everyone understand what conversion out of doubt is? This is something we do all the time for many, many situations. That is, sometimes we don't know for sure is a person Jewish or not Jewish. An example might be that your grandmother converted you know, 80 years ago and we're not sure if it was an Orthodox conversion or not an Orthodox conversion. So maybe you're Jewish if your mom, you know, was born from the grandmother, but maybe you're not. So we do what is called the two terms are interchangeable. Either giyor lechumra, giyor lechumra means conversion to be strict, or giyor misafek, conversion out of doubt. Those two terms are the same term. So if the surrogate is not Jewish, the kid needs giyor misafek, number one. Number two, you have to be careful that the surrogate not be a married woman, whether she's Jewish or not Jewish. Uh, especially if she's Jewish, though, because it would be possible that the child might be a mamzer. If husband's mm -hmm. sperm, even if he fertilizes his wife's egg, but it's going to be carried by a married woman, then the child that is born might be a mamzer. So the surrogate should be single, not married. Yes? Yes. Because otherwise, it might be treated as adultery. And a child born from adultery is mamzer. Doesn't adultery equal? Well, equal? according to Rav Moshe Feinstein, you're correct. Uh, that's another machlokas, but at least you get into that question. Third rule, which is this, a corollary of the second rule, is the surrogate should not be a relative with whom husband's relations would be incestuous. As a result, therefore, you cannot use a child a daughter as a surrogate for the mother, which is actually, that's very rare, 
or you cannot use the mother as a surrogate for the daughter, which is sometimes done, and you cannot use a sister as a surrogate for a sister. What? Okay? And the reason is because in all of those cases, uh, if husband's relationship is maybe, maybe poten potentially incestuous, and that might produce a mamzer. So therefore, the ideal surrogate should be a single woman who is not uh, a relative, who is not a mother, daughter, or sibling of wife. Uh, married surrogates are not, not good because married surrogates create problems of adultery. Now this is an important point because the most common surrogates tend to be married because they've been through pregnancies already and that's why they're, it's safer for them, or it's healthier for them. And number two, uh, it is very common that people use close relatives as surrogates. Uh, in fact, sisters. I mean, surrogacy is not that common anyway, but within the limited number of surrogacies that we have, sisters are very common volunteers for surrogates. And indeed, mothers, mothers, because it's very confusing. A mom, a mom is a surrogate for her daughter uh, and gives birth to a girl. Is this her granddaughter or is this her daughter? It's confusing. But what about that whole thing of the, like, because the mother brought the daughter up, there's no doubt. So they didn't hear you. Because the mom, because yeah. of a parent, there's no sexual anything. So why would it be a problem for her to carry her daughter's baby? No, because the reason is, uh, the reason is, because, because that means mother-in-law is carrying the baby of her son-in-law. Okay. Right? So you can't deny that, that, that physical material. That's not the same as sexual attraction, if we have yichud or hugging and kissing, this is mama, she's carrying the baby. Yeah. yeah. So is this saying that the, the one who carries the baby is the mother? No, in other words, what I'm saying is that it's an, un, it's an halachic uncertainty. So all of these men, in other words, there are certain arguments in halacha in which different rabbis have different positions and we don't have a final ruling. Okay. So since okay. it is possible, I'm not saying for sure, since it is possible that the gestational surrogate is the mother, it's also possible not. You're right. Uh, therefore, we have to err on the side of being strict, and therefore we have to be afraid of these. But you understand, I'm not saying for sure this is the halacha, but I'm saying we have to be afraid of this. And indeed, uh, the state of Israel does have a surrogacy law, a secular law. The Knesset passed a surrogacy law, but because, of it, because in Israel there's no separation of church and state, the, the Rabbanut is involved in many secular laws, so the state of Israel, the law of the Knesset, puts the Rabbanut in charge of surrogacies in Israel, and the Rabbanut has issued guidelines that indeed say the surrogate mother must be a single woman that is not related uh, because of these rules. Otherwise, you have hal halachic problems. Yeah. It can be like a family friend. Uh, yeah, uh, single. If if she's single, yeah, yeah. Can a relative donate an egg? So, all right. So, so, so let, me, uh, let me let me flip it around. Now, right now, I, I wanted to address what you need to remember about surrogates. So now, let's. I'm sorry. Does someone have a question for yeah. Okay. So, um, in terms of the trial thing. Yeah. Like, I thought Tribes do come from the father, 100%. Oh, so if somebody has to convert, because, like, because they were, you know, came from, like, a surrogate or idolatry, like, mother, so 
no, no, but here, here but okay, 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 let, me, let me give you a simple example to illustrate what the problem is. Forget about surrogacy. Let's assume you simply have a non-Jewish father uh, with a Jewish mother. So the child is Jewish, but has no tribe. Do you understand that? Now, let's talk about it the other way. Let's say it's a Jewish father. This is where I think you may be uh, missing something. A Jewish father, non-Jewish mother, child has to convert. They still have no tribe. Now you might ask, Hmm. Why is there no tribe? Uh, there's a Jewish father, right? Right? Yeah, that, that, that's your question. But the answer is that once you convert to Judaism, that cuts off halachically all connections. So the child is halachically fatherless. And motherless? Uh, yes, as a matter of fact, has to be motherless as well. So, uh, but but uh, so therefore, either way, from a mixed marriage, the child will never have a tribal affiliation, because if the uh, father is non-Jewish and the mother is Jewish. The child is Jewish but has no tribe. But even if the mother is not Jewish and the father is Jewish, so the father himself has a tribe, Colleen or whatever it would be, but the conversion process erases the bond. So either way, the kid will not have a tribe. Well, first of all, if you have an orphan that people are taking care of, <laughs> right? So you don't give stuck it to an orphan who's raised uh, by Bill Gates, whatever it is. So, so generally speaking, uh, if you have <laughs> Bill Gates, you do it? yeah, no, 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 he's not. No, he's not. No, no, no. And I just gave an example of someone. No, no. So, so the rule of orphan is an orphan that doesn't have means. I mean, if if someone is Halachically, halachically an orphan, but is being raised by loving parents. You know, he's not, he's not poor. And again, I want to emphasize, because sometimes people take this the wrong way, I, I want to emphasize this. When I talk about uh, a conversion or somebody with a non-Jewish father, etc., not being related, I, I am not referring, and halacha is not referring, to the love and the affection and the respect that you have for someone that took care of you. Of course, you know, you love and respect. I mean, the fact that, uh, the idea that there's no father is referring to the particular halakhic <laughs> constructs of is there a tribe or, or whatever it is. We're not suggesting at all that because you converted, uh, you, know, uh, you know, I'm sorry, you know, you're not my parents anymore. You know, that's not, uh, that's not the way life works. On an emotional and appreciative and an ethical level, all of those things are still there. In fact, Ravaji Yosef even ruled, some people disagree with this in particular, that a person who converted, and both of his parents are not Jewish, both of them are not Jewish, uh, when they die, he should recite Kaddish for them. Because, uh, for the parents, in other words, a, a ger should recite Kaddish for his non-Jewish, even for his non-Jewish parents. Now, not everyone will agree with that. Some say Kaddish is a particular prayer only for Jewish parents. But that just shows you that we do take the idea of, of still honoring and loving and respecting your non-Jewish parents, whether it's both parents or whether it's the father or whether it's the mother, we take it very seriously. Yeah? Yes, we would. We would. Baruch uh, Hashem, when Mashiach comes, there will be many, many halachos that will be resolved, although I want to backtrack on that a little bit. It does say the following, though. It does say 
Mashiach is not going to reveal any disqualification. So, for example, there may be many mamzers in our mm -hmm. midst, people who are born from adultery or whatever it is. Mashiach is not going to make anybody no good, so to speak. So Mashiach, I, thi I think, might resolve that issue, the issue of Jewish or not Jewish, conversion or not conversion, but he will not reveal any information that will stigmatize uh, somebody. Well, yeah, but the difference is this. The difference is Mashiach will not take somebody that has the status of being a totally kosher Jew and make them no good. But if the halacha right now is we don't know, so we're not stigmatizing, we're just like we don't know, Mashiach will give us the information to be able to know. But that's not the same as creating the stigma because it's not like we know right now. In other words, if, I'll give you an example. If everybody would paskin that if you're born from a Jewish mother, you're Jewish. Mashiach is not going to come and say, no, you're not. But if the halacha is, we don't know your status, so that Mashiach would, uh, would, would help us. Uh, help us so with that. Uh, if they didn't convert? So then, <laughs> that's very tricky. That would depend on what Mashiach would decide the halacha would be. I can't, I can't tell you. Based on what? Based on what? They spent their whole, if, like, the, if he made that decision and they spent their whole life thinking they were Jewish, they died, Jewish burial, everything, like, would he be like, that, that's, not that's, a very, that's a very, very mm -hmm. hard question. You know, that is a hard question. And that's something that I'm and not sure I have. That's not sure. Oh, yes, of course we would. I thought conversion oh. won't be happening. Oh, after Mashiach comes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, the reason why, well, let's, let's, let's think about this for a moment. You are correct, just to be sure everyone knows the text that uh, you're referring to. Uh, there is a rule in the Gemara that once Mashiach comes, you cannot convert to Judaism anymore. And the reason for that is a logical reason. It's not like a mystical reason. The reason simply is that in order to be sincere in your conversion, you got to want to convert when Jews are kind of despised and treated very poorly. And then if you convert, you really are sincere. But when Mashiach comes and Jews are on the top of the world, oh, you know, what, you want to be good? Yeah, sure, I want to be Jewish. You know, I mean, I mean Hitler, Hitler will want to be Jewish, you know, when Mashiach comes. So that's, now, so here's what I would say to you. If somebody, though, when things were bad for the Jews, identified as Jewish and lived as a Jew, I think they would be allowed to convert even when Shiach comes because they demonstrated they want to be part of the team when yeah. things were tough. So the rule that you can't convert when Mashiach comes is only for people who had no interest like, until Mashiach comes. Just like how you said, he's not going to basically call, like if you're a mom's or you don't know, or like you do know but you haven't told anyone, he's not going to you're a mom's or like, right. it's going to be like, <laughs> you're not Jewish. That's like, right, that's you spent right. Your whole life it English. seems to be Mashiach will not, will not do that stuff because Mashiach down. is not there. There's a complicated rule in halacha. It, it, doesn't, it's not, it doesn't make so much analytical sense. And that is, even if somebody is puzzled, someone has all sorts of uh, disabilities, marital disabilities, if it's not known to the community, we don't publicize things. We let things lie. Uh, there's no mitzvah to publicize the disqualifications that people have. And even Mashiach is not going to... Now, you can't ignore what you know personally, but you don't uh, publicize it. Yeah. 
And then also going back to the surrogate thing, how it can't be mom, sister, yeah. daughter, could it be like aunt? Well, again, anything that is incestuous, uh, you know, you can't have a surrogate that the husband could not have relations with. Uh, well, an aunt, so it depends. Yeah, an, an aunt, yeah. This is an interesting asymmetry in Halakha, and I'm not sure I have an explanation for it. Uh, an aunt is a forbidden relationship. I am not allowed to have relations with my father's uh, sister or my mother's sister. Or, or even the wife of my father's brother or my mother's brother, uh, and therefore that is incestuous. Now, what's interesting is uncle and niece is okay. It's hard to understand this. Nephew and aunt is incest. Nephew and aunt is incest, even if she's not married. Nephew and aunt is incest. Uncle and niece is permitted. In fact, according to many interpretations, Esther was Mordechai's niece. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And Chazal learned that Mordechai married, married her. So if you ask me a question, people ask me this question sometimes, and I, don't have a, I don't have a real answer. That is, how come, according to halacha, not secular, secular may not allow it. According to halacha, uncles can marry nieces. In fact, some Hasidic courts uh, do that though, often. Uncles marry nieces. But uh, aunts cannot marry nephews. Why? Uh, the only, only thing I can tell you is that's what the Torah says. But I, I don't I don't know the difference myself. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes, that's called split split surrogacy. Yeah. Yep. Well, here's what I'll tell you. Mother A for sure is not the halachic mother. For sure, we can eliminate her. And as between B and C, it'll be the same machlokas. Is it genetic egg donor or is it the gestational mother? Meaning it would be an unresolved machlokas in halacha. So we don't have a definite answer to that. But the, the one definite answer is it is not mother A. Yes. As a surrogate. Yes. But then she gets married. Yes. Before the baby is born. Yes. Does that create the mom's Absolutely not. Uh, uh, mom's is defined by her status at the time of conception. So mm-hmm. the child is absolutely not a mom's mm-hmm. under those circumstances. Yeah. Um, can you mention if it's the husband's wife as an as your aunt through marriage? Yes. Is that also Yes. Yes. Although it's a little complicated, meaning like this. You can have four types of aunts. You can have your father's sister. You can have your mother's sister. Uh, We'll call those natural aunts. Then you can have the wife of your father's brother. And you can have the wife of your father's mother. Uh, Your father, what's that? The wife of your father's brother. Mother's brother. The wife of your mother's brother. So the wife of your mother's brother is only a rabbinic prohibition. It's not, that's not incestuous. But of course, if she's married, it's adultery, but assuming that she's widowed or whatever, whatever it was. Yeah. So three out of the four aunts are incestuous do and one of the four aunts is incestuous only rabbinically. Yeah. 
Yeah. When you said there's no mitzvah to publicize things that you know, um, yeah. if, if someone knows that somebody else is a mom there, they have to tell people who are dating him, no? No, yes, that much you have to do. Meaning if you know, if you know. Uh, what I mean is, but yeah. you, don't, you don't necessarily try to investigate it. Uh, in other words, you don't investigate okay. if people are momsers, uh, even though you have suspicions. Uh, once you have definitive knowledge, then you do have to share it. That much is true. If you as a rabbi knew that a student of yours had shared a circumstance in which tragically he's a momser, yeah. and then like you met, you saw him on a date, or even you met him, like, oh, this is my girlfriend, like, would you feel like you have to say something? It depends on how, uh, it depends on how definitive my knowledge was, meaning if it was uh, suspicions and the like, you know, you don't, you don't, you you don't know, bring it up. Like, if, if the student even sat with you and said, like, oh, shoot, I'm a mom's there. Oh, okay, but I'll tell you, I'll tell you this. I, I, I have this, I ha I've had this experience more than once, that even when somebody says they are a mom's there, yeah. uh, you know, uh, they, they might be wrong. You know, they, they describe their situation, and they're not halakhically accurate. For example, if their mother had an affair with a Gentile while she was married to a Jew, the kid is not a mamzer. Right? So there are many halakhic rules that uh, take away mamzeris. So somebody who says they're a mamzer, that doesn't necessarily mean that much. Uh, you have to look at the, at the underlying facts. It has to be an affair with another Jew. It has to be an affair with another Jew. That's exactly right. It's important to know that. Uh, in other words, in order to create a mamzer, other than in incest is one type of mamzer. That's incest. That's rare. But if you're, ta if you're talking about adultery, again, let me remind you, we've gone over this many times. You have to have a Jewish woman that is halachically married to a Jewish man who then has intercourse with another Jewish man. So look at all the conditions. Jewish woman must be halachically married with a Jewish man, and she has intercourse with a, another Jewish man, either single or married. We don't care about that. That creates mamzer. And even then, let me point out, that there is an assumption that any child she has is from her husband, meaning even if we know she committed adultery, we don't assume the kid is from the adulterer, even if he looks like the, you know, looks like the adulterer. So halachic makes all sorts of presumptions here. So it's not easy to make a mamzer. Baruch Hashem, it's not, not so easy. Uh, and right, so, so you have to know. So a kid can't just say, I'm a mamzer. In fact, even his mother can't say that. Mom says to her son, you know, the dramatic uh, confrontation, you are, you, know, you are the son of the affair I had. Mom is not believed. We don't believe mother, you know? uh, even if her declaration is that the kid is a mom. I told you the story. I, I think I told you the story. I mean, I can't believe I, that um, uh, you know a, a mother passed away when her son was in his early teens, mm -hmm. and she left him a locket that he always wore around his neck. And he thought it was her hair. He thought it was something. And there was a little message: "Open this locket on the day of your wedding." I, 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 the story doesn't make a lot of sense, but I'll tell you the story. So they're under the chuppah. I, I, I don't think it's true, actually, because, because the story just doesn't make any sense. Why would you say, open it under the wedding? Like, right? So he opens it under, Mr. Moshe Feinstein is, 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 is doing the wedding. He opens the locket. He thinks it'll be a message from mom saying, Mazel Tov, I'm with you. My neshama's with you. That could be a beautiful, beautiful thing. Uh, instead it says, 
You're a mamzer, you can't get married, you know. <laughs> you need to know this under the under, why under the chub it makes no sense. Why does he need to know that under the chub? You know, you tell him before. You know. But anyway, so the kid turns white. He starts. He's, he's on the verge of fainting. He's a, he's a religious boy. So the Moshe finds him and says, "What's wrong? Are you sick? What's wrong? What's wrong?" So he just wordlessly hands the hands the message to Rav Feinstein, and Rav Feinstein says, "Let's just proceed." <laughs> he just continued with the wedding. <laughs> it didn't have any halachic uh, impact. So really, impact, you know. to do like a DNA test. Yes, but even then, some opinions say halacha doesn't accept DNA tests, right? So, <laughs> for, for Mom Zayrus. So even then, right? Yeah. Um, First cousins is not incest. That, that's correct. Uh, now, legally, it might be. Uh, some, in fact, in the Hasidic world, in the Hasidic world, not uh, Chabad so much. I'll leave a little bit. Uh, first cousins commonly uh, do marry. A lot of dynasties, cousins marry and, and propagate that way. Now, I knew. I knew one case. One case in my life. I knew of a niece. This was after the Holocaust. It was a very, very interesting type of marriage. A niece married her uncle. Her, her uncle was an older, much older than her, and she married the uncle almost, almost to be like a daughter. It's an interesting type of marriage, where she could take care of him. Well, in other words, the uncle had survived the Holocaust, and uh, the niece. You know, there are things you can do as a wife that you know you can't, you can't automatically do uh, if you're not, uh, you know, you're not married. In other words, uh, give him companionship. Give him. Help. I'm not saying she had to do it, but this is uh, this was a decision. Sometimes you have situations. Now I know a case, in, uh, another case, like which has nothing to do with this. A great, great Rosh Hashiva, and for some reason they got divorced. But then, towards the end of his life, he got cancer, and she wanted to remarry him to be able to help him in his final months. Very, very, very interesting that even after divorce, there's. There can be a loving connection. Well, touching him, yeah, touching him, embracing him, do different things like that. Okay. Alrighty. So those are what you need to know about surrogacy. And I'm going to talk about egg donation. You asked that. Yeah. Medically, like, do need, if someone needs help, the the man has cancer or something, and the wife wants to help, but she's in need, though, can she still touch him? Uh, you know, if it's absolutely necessary, yes. If it's absolutely necessary. Yeah, yeah, he could he could do that. That's an example of, uh, what does the Gemara say? The Gemara has a category called chassid shota. Chassid shota means an idiot, pious person. And the example of an idiot chassid is somebody where a woman is drowning in the sea and the man says, I'm not allowed to touch women, and he lets the woman drown. So the same thing would be, a woman falls on the street, a woman falls on the ice, but, so the same thing would be the opposite. If a man is frail and falls down, uh, the woman can uh, pick up. But if there are other people that can do it, you know, uh, it's better to have other people do it. But if, if, if what you need to do, again, ultimately, you know, the Torah is a guide for life, obviously, and, and ultimately it's going to be practical. Halacha itself recognizes the realities of, of life, and, and uh, when something needs to be done, halacha will, will give you a way to be able to do it. Okay, alrighty, so now let me just flip it around. What do you need to know about egg donation? So again, if egg donor is not Jewish, the child should have a gior misafek. 
same thing, Giyor Lechumcha, Giyor Misafek, etc. It is better to have uh, a single egg donor and not a relative, but here it's a little bit more tricky because it's very hard to say that if husband's sperm fertilizes an egg from his wife's sister or his wife's mother, but it's the, wi- it's the wife that's carrying the baby, it's very hard to envision, envision that as incest. Some people would, will be strict, but, but as they say, there is more of a basis to permit egg donation from relatives than to permit surrogacy from relatives. But, the married woman? Huh? The egg can come from a married woman? Well, uh, as they say, some people are machmer on that, but, but, but some are more lenient, meaning it's a little easier because it's harder to assimilate the incest model to egg donation, where there's literally no contact with the other woman's body at all. Mm. Right? Okay, but some people are strict even on that. Yeah? Um, is it going to want to marry um, a single woman who is a surrogate for a Oh, wow. A very excellent question. Excellent, excellent question. Again, let me be sure everyone understands the basis for it. A Kohen, as you know, cannot marry a woman that had intercourse with a non Jew. Uh, what if she was, that, that's the halacha, a Kohen cannot marry a woman that had relations with a non-Jew. A Kohen can't marry a woman that had relations with a Jew as long as she wasn't divorced, as long as she didn't have a gap. Now, so the question becomes, what if, a, what if the uh, woman uh, was impregnated, uh, I'm sorry, not even pregnant, not pregnant. She, she carried the fertilized embryo of a non-Jew would that be considered having relations with a non-Jew to disqualify her from marrying a Cohen? In all probability, not. But it is an excellent, excellent question. Yeah. Um, what if this woman has relations with a non-Jew when she's not Jewish and then she converts? Well, let me put it this way: uh, a Cohen cannot marry a converted uh, woman anyway, so it wouldn't make a difference. <laughs> so even if you say the conversion cancels out the past, there's another problem. She's she's a convert. Um, okay. Alrighty, so this is kind of uh, basic, you know, very basic knowledge of understanding the complications. Yeah. 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 On the subject of adultery and monetary situations. Yep. We said that only according to the Satmar Rebbe. Yes. Is there a concern of adultery? Yes. Okay. But even according to Rav Moshe Feinstein... No, no, so, so I have to make the point. Yeah, yeah, so maybe I should, uh, I should make it clear that all of these problems with uh, incest in uh, surrogacy and in egg donation is only according to the Satmar Rebbe. According to Rav Moshe, there would not be a problem. Because none in the absence... None of these. Uh, uh, because in the absence of intercourse, you don't generate these issues. According to Rabbi Feinstein. Okay. So now let me begin with uh, another aspect of fertility technology, and that is um, stem cell research. Ooh. Uh, and stem cell research is not about having kids, but it's an outgrowth of fertility technologies. So first, uh, let's understand, in a very simple level, what are stem cells? What are embryonic stem cells in particular, or other types of stem cells? So uh, the best definition of stem cells, I'm going to have a, a very unlikely uh, source that I will probably only quote once uh, this year. That is the late uh, Mary Richards of the group Peter Paul and Barry, which I don't listen to, obviously, but uh, famous group. 
and Mary Richards died of cancer a few years ago. And uh, she was undergoing treatment with stem cells. And she said, stem cells are little cells that haven't decided what they want to be when they grow up. <laughs> and that is an absolutely accurate definition of stem cells. And the way it works is this. Let me first talk about embryonic stem cells, then I'll mention the other types. When sperm fertilizes an egg, you now have the formation of what's called an embryo, a blastocyst, or whatever, it's an embryo ultimately. And the embryo keeps on dividing into cells. But initially, when an embryo divides for the first uh, eight to 14 days, the cells are not differentiated, meaning you don't yet have brain cells, liver cells, kidney cells. You don't have that. They're literally, like Parav, they're undifferentiated cells. They don't have an identity. Only after two weeks or so do cells begin to differentiate, meaning some of those cells turn into liver, some of them turn into heart, some of them turn into kidney, some of them turn into brain, spinal tissue. That is cell differentiation. Because the reason is, you see, every cell you have has all of your DNA. So in your skin cell is the DNA for liver, kidney, heart, but it shuts off when it differentiates and becomes this. So initially, stem cells are the foundational cells that contain the whole package of the organism, which have not yet specialized and acquired a unique identity. And therefore, uh, that exists within the first, uh, well, from point zero to eight to 14 days after fertilization. And then after 14 days, we begin seeing differentiation. Now, once cells differentiate, uh, it is very hard to reverse the process, meaning, although cloning does that, maybe we'll talk about cloning a little later. You can't really, well, other than cloning technologies, traditionally you wouldn't be able to take a skin cell and turn it into a liver cell. Because once it moves in a certain direction, that's what it is. Although we'll talk about cloning, which is a way of reversing it. But until it has been differentiated, it can actually become anything at all. So what researchers discovered, and this is not new anymore, this is around 25 years ago, is if you take an early embryo within eight, from point zero to eight to 10 days, and you harvest, harvest, you, you clip off from the embryo various cells, you can then grow those cells in culture and either keep them as stem cells, like so, so, from, so from one cell you can get 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 of them, and then you could eventually coax them by various electronic and chemical means to become any one of 200 cells, 200 types of cells in the body. You can make it uh, liver, uh, brain, etc. This is a remarkable thing. This means you could take stem cells from embryo, you can culture them, and you could create any type of tissue that you want. Now, this is very remarkable. Number one, theoretically, what this might mean is you could eventually create from stem cells an entire organ system. Even now, we create from stem cells heart valve tissue. 
you can harvest from early embryo stem cells, and you can make heart valve tissue. And the heart valve tissue has been used in heart, heart surgery. Uh, you can create spinal cord tissue. And this has been used for people with Parkinson's who have problems in the spinal cord. Theoretically, now science is not there yet, we don't know if they'll be there before Mashiach or not. Theoretically, eventually, stem cells could be used not only to create heart valve tissue, which is already done, but to create entire organs, create hearts, create hearts. Now that would be an amazing thing because that would solve, number one, the organ donation shortage and number two, it would avoid the halachic problems of organ transplants that we talked about where you're taking it from donors who may halachically still be alive because their heart is beating. But you don't need, a, you don't need a, a donor anymore. You could create the heart from the stem cells themselves. So stem cells is a very, very, very great technology. Now, where do you find stem cells? So there are really three sources. The controversial source is technically called embryonic stem cells. That simply means the harvesting of those stem cells from fertilized embryos in vitro within 14 days or 10 days of fertilization. Those are called embryonic stem cells. However, in truth, there are also adult stem cells. Even in our bodies, there are stem cells. There are in bone marrow some stem cells which can be used and there is also stem cells in placenta in afterbirths and, and, and the like. And I have to say that halachically adult stem cells and placenta stem cells have virtually no halachic problems at all. They can be used, they can be created to whatever they create. So all of the halachic controversy about stem cells, which we'll talk about in a few moments, are really talking about embryonic stem cells. And the problem is basically this. Just like the old saying, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. Uh, the problem is you cannot harvest embryonic stem cells without destroying the embryo. And the problem, therefore, is stem cell research is great, it's wonderful, it can do a lot of things, but it involves the destruction of fertilized embryos. The question becomes, is the destruction of a fertilized embryo equivalent to an abortion? Right, that's the issue. I'm sorry, someone had a hand up? Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, a little Possibility that when Michelle comes, he will say like certain things are luckily okay that we were like like heart trans like not knowing like about brain death, brain death, and heart death. Yeah, so first, let me let me just clarify one thing because maybe this uh, qualifies what I said before. Mashiach himself is not going to be the one that decides all of the halacha. What's going to happen is you're going to have the Sanhedrin of 70 yeah. that's going to be reestablished, and they will be the ones who will be deciding. Okay, but, but accepting that modification... Uh, no, no, he, because, because again, uh, he's, he is the king. He is like David HaMelech, yeah. but he does not uh, decide all the halachos. 
Uh, but nevertheless, uh, the Sanhedrin will can decide things are permitted that we think is us. Yeah, that's, that's correct. Yeah. Okay, so so I'll, I'll talk about that. That's the next thing. Yeah. Yes, can save lives. Sure. Sure. We'll, we'll talk. That, that's exactly what we're going to talk about. Yeah. Uh, kosher to eat to eat? Uh, no, 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 because number one, at a minimum, the placenta contains uh, human blood, and blood is, is trafe. But also, uh, you should not lick your finger, that, that's correct. I mean, it's not kosher, uh, but it, it's The only thing is, blood, blood that never left your mouth is okay. So if your gums are bleeding and you're sucking your gums, uh, that's okay. But once, for example, the blood is out of your mouth, you're not allowed to uh, take it back in. Like if you bit on a piece of bread and you know, there's some blood on the bread, you can't uh, eat that piece of eat that piece of bread. Uh, so number one, at a minimum, you have that. And uh, number two, uh, generally speaking, eating human flesh is not good either, and <laughs> etc. Now, in truth, interestingly enough, though, I'll tell you an interesting thing: uh, cannibalism is not as severe as eating pure non-kosher food. So if you had a choice. What? If you, I, I, don't mean, I don't mean killing. I don't mean killing somebody. But if you had a choice, right? You're stranded, right? You're in the, you know, you're in the desert, and God forbid uh, your colleague, your friend died. Oh my God! And you have a choice between eating some bacon or eating human flesh. So the halacha actually is a human flesh. I don't. Again, I don't mean killing somebody, but but someone's dead. Eating dead human flesh is less of a sin but, than eating oh a chazer. So if you have a... Ch- <laughs> if, you're, if, ba- if you're like in the middle of nowhere, bacon is the only thing... I don't no, know. no, if it's the only... No, of course. You're allowed to violate the Torah to save your life, of course. But if you have a choice of doing it in two ways, you've got to go with the lesser... Right, right. So for example, uh, if you had like kosher food and non-kosher, you certainly have to go with kosher, that's obvious. But here, even though... Huh? <laughs> but both are not kosher. But even in non-kosher, we actually have hierarchies of of of, of sin. What if it's yeah. a goy? Yeah. <laughs> uh, a goy and a pig? Yeah. Uh, no, a goy is better than a pig. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What about a goy and a Jew? Is the Jew preferable to eat? <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, actually, my instinct is a goy is better to eat, but. Uh, I understand. I understand what you're saying because, because there's not culture food in the thing. I hear you. Yeah. Um, as far as the placenta, you said it was not kosher. What about, although it's not kosher, what about the scientific and medical research saying it's good for your body after giving birth? Well, a lot of things might be good for your body. I mean, I mean, listen, bacon might not well, probably not good, but bacon might be good. You know, the health benefits of something doesn't override this. I mean, listen. We've had, uh, Baruch Hashem, thousands and thousands of years of, of Jewish women giving birth who have not been eating placenta. So it's not like it's needed for survival. And now listen, if you had someone who was able to extract from the placenta through chemical processing mm-hmm. the vitamins and, and the minerals, so as a processed, something that's processed chemically mm-hmm. loses its status as non-kosher. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why a lot of Vitamins might have non-kosher derivatives, but you're allowed to eat them. 
So that might be the next uh, yeah. medical breakthrough, find a placenta pill. They oh do. They, they, do they, they, have yes. they powderize it. Yeah. Okay, so that might be different. That, that might be very different. It depends if it has a flavor or not. Uh, <laughs> if it does have a taste, uh, you're not allowed to eat it. Yeah, but if it's a capsule, uh, yeah, yeah, that would be okay. Oh, I thought you were talking, so maybe, maybe I don't have the right picture. Uh, you, you, in other words, is that what you were talking about? People having a pill, a capsule? Or people like taking a spoon and eating, eating the stuff? No, I'm just asking, maybe I had the wrong picture. When you're talking about eating placenta, are you talking about taking a capsule with powder? Or are you talking about you making can, a soup? Okay, so a, ca- a capsule, a capsule may very well be okay. No, it's, gra- it's the capsule's just ground up and put in yeah. a capsule. Okay, well, okay. All right. But the thing is, here's the thing. Once it's in a capsule, see, this is a ca- capsules are a little different. A capsule means you're not tasting it in any way, and it just gets, just gets dissolved in your stomach. So halakhically, there's a certain leniency because it's not called eating because it does not go through your, uh, your throat and your taste buds. And therefore, even though it's in your stomach, uh, just like intravenous, for example. Uh, if you have non-kosher intravenous delivery, that is not a violation of the laws of kashras because it's not going through your mouth. Now, here, I admit, a capsule is going through your mouth, but since uh, there is no, literally no taste, uh, it may not be a that much of a problem. Yeah. If that's the case, can't we just make all non kosher foods in a capsule and swallow it? Well, the the well, well, the answer is there still has to be a, a what you might call a medical benefit or a medical necessity. If it's just for the pleasure, what, I don't know what pleasure it would be, but if it's just for the fun of doing it, uh, that that you could not. Do. Yeah. Yeah. If she has a, a medical condition that this benefits her, then uh, there is halachic basis to permit her to take even a non-kosher medical supplement if there is literally no taste that she has from it. The concept is it's not called eating. The Torah prohibits eating non-kosher food, and eating has certain definitions. So, so, so it's, a little, it's a little tricky. It's, it's not so clear. I think different rabbis would give her different advice, meaning, as a general rule, if there are two alternatives, each of which are equally medically good, you go with the kosher one. You don't go with the non-kosher one, even if it's in a capsule. But if the non-kosher is markedly better, then you have that hunter that I mentioned. So here it would have to be a question of you know, how accurate is your mom's assessment. Uh, if indeed the natural is, is much better, much safer, then go ahead, but you know, I, I can't vouch for it in particular. I don't know the fact that, yeah. Um, is, I'm, this is totally coming from ignorance. I know that people talk about saving cord blood. Um, yes. Is that anything? Okay, so when, yes. when a baby yes. is born, they have an umbilical cord, when you cut the Yes, cord, that is another cord. source of stem cells, that cord blood. Cells? That, that's correct. That is oh, correct. Really? Cord blood is, is uh, stem cells, yeah. And that's a totally not halakhically permitted? Halakhically totally permitted, absolutely okay. permitted. Because I know there's a lot of cord blood in Yes, oh. cord, cord, cord blood is very, very good. And it's what a, is it for? Okay, so, oh, no, no, because like this, because um, the cord blood is very rich in these stem cells, mm-hmm. uh, and therefore if the woman later 
would need uh, tissue reconstruction, whether it's a spinal cord tissue or the like, you have a, a factory from which you can create this tissue from her own blood so the body will not reject it. Uh, so that's good. So that's why, so now they're encouraging women to uh, preserve the blood from the umbilical cords. That's why it's called cord blood. And uh, that is a source of non-embryonic stem cells. Okay, so when you hear controversy, even in the secular press, about stem cells, the controversy is not so much these days, but it was uh, in 2001 when stem cell research started, uh, they are talking about embryonic stem cells. They're not talking about cord uh, blood, they're not talking about umbilical, and they're not talking about bone, bone marrow, okay? Now, let me give you a little history about this. Uh, stem cell research became a big, big thing all the way back in 2001, which has been a while ago already. And it dominated the news the whole summer of 2001 until the month of September when something else happened and stem cells receded from the news. And that was, you know what it was, 9-11, September 2001, the bombing of the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. Mm. But so stem cells got forgotten for a while because of 9-11. But it was a major, major, major issue. And uh, some of the controversy never, you know, they kind of just forgot about it and let it go on. But it was very, very controversial. The Catholic Church took the position now, as everybody knows, the Catholic Church is very much against abortion. The Catholic Church took the position that the harvesting of embryonic stem cells that terminates embryos equals early term abortion and therefore is equivalent to murder. Mm. Now, just to give you a little perspective, how big is the embryo when we harvest stem cells from the embryo. Remember, it's only like 10 to 14 days old. It is, it's not microscopic, but it's the size of a pen point. Make a, make a thick dot with your pen, and that's what the embryo is. So the Catholic Church says, taking something from that pinpoint, or pen point, is abortion, and is murder, and the Catholic Church said it is absolutely against uh, church doctrine to harvest embryonic stem cells even if you could save lives by doing it because they said, actually at least logically they're consistent because they said you can't kill the baby to save other people and they took the position that this pen point was a baby. That's what they said. Now, here is, here is where things get a little crazy. Because keep in mind the following. You know, the Catholic Church's position would make sense if, if you don't harvest embryonic stem cells, someone's going to carry the embryo and have a baby. But what normally happens is, these are what are called, see, it's not really the nicest term, these are what are called spare embryos. Stem cells were obtained from what are called spare. Now, what are spare embryos? That's where a couple, through an in vitro protocol, generated more embryos than they want to have implanted. Right? Remember we discussed this? That when a woman goes through an in vitro fertilization procedure, they give her drugs to, you know, allow a lot of eggs to mature at the same time. A lot of eggs are harvested. Let's say up to 20 eggs are harvested. They're exposed to the sperm in the in vitro 
petri dish, and sometimes you might have, I mean, sometimes only one might be fertilized, sometimes none, but you can also have 10 of them are fertilized. Now, if 10 of them are fertilized, what's supposed to happen? Now, you can freeze them for later use, it's possible, but let's say they don't want, they just want to two kids or one kid or whatever it is. So what do you do with the spare ones? So stem cell research was a common use after 2001 of what are called spare embryos. Spare embryos means embryos that are not destined for implantation. They're not going to be donated, and they're not donated to another couple, and they're not going to be implanted in the wife herself. So stem cell research was a useful benefit. Now, the Catholic Church says no. Now, if you follow the Catholic Church, what's going to happen to those spare embryos? They're not going to be implanted. They're going to be flushed down the toilet. So the question becomes, it's one thing to say, better to implant the embryo than to destroy the embryo. Okay, that's the right to life. But is it better to throw the embryo away than to use it for some beneficial purpose, right? You understand the problem here? I mean, the problem is the Catholic Church was not advocating adopt an embryo policy. If they would do that, at least they would be giving these embryos life. Instead, they're just saying, no stem cell retrieval. But the embryo is going to die anyway, right? It's going to be, it's going to simply disappear. Flushed on the toilet, thawed, whatever it is, passively or actively. So that's kind of a problem. Uh, their defense, though, is that maybe it's better to let something die than to use it by killing it. You see why? Because when you use it by killing it, you're giving a heksher, you're giving a moral imprimatur that it's okay. And maybe if you're going to kill it, let it be murder. Let, let, let it not be a useful thing that you're getting out of it because morally that creates a confusion if something is good or bad. Interesting idea. Meaning if you're gonna do something bad, let's not use it for something good because if you use it for something good, you might convince yourself that what you did was good when really it was bad. I'll let you ponder that uh, over, over the week. So now, uh, in spite of what you might think, this is not a course in Catholic medical ethics, <laughs> uh, but I, need, I wanted you to get the background so you understand the, the issue here. Um, so the question we have to discuss is, I guess we'll hold it over for next week, what is the Jewish position on the harvesting of embryonic stem cells? We do know, as a general rule, just to be very simple, that Judaism is generally not in favor of abortion, you know, generally although we'll talk about the different exceptions and the ins and outs, but the question becomes, do we regard the harvesting of embryonic stem cells, the size of a pencil point or a pen point, do we regard that as abortion at all? Or is it so early in the process that it doesn't count and therefore would be justified on the basis of the medical benefits? That's going to be the question that we're going to discuss. Again, the Catholic Church treats it exactly as an abortion, we're going to see if that is the case halakhically, yeah. Um, if a couple um, went through IVF and let's say they have three embryos, hooray, that you know, seem to be like implantable, and they implant one and then there's a tragic accident and the mother 
or the father, either parent, dies. The other parent can't use those embryos without the, well, I guess the, if the mother is still alive, she could have them implanted in her. Anyway, but the father can't have them implanted in him, obviously. He can't have them implanted in like a new wife, right, legally? Uh, legally, generally speaking, not. Uh, so then those yeah. embryos, even though they, they originally intended to have those children, yeah. they, those embryos become not usable That's correct. at all, meaning he doesn't have access to them. Or, I mean, if they both die, then obviously. But like, even if he's still alive, he, he can't access them. Nobody else certainly can access them. They're well, uh, he may be able to authorize, legally, legally for a moment, he may be able to authorize stem cell research. Uh, could he authorize implantation? I'm not. I'm going I'm, I'm to have to check that legally. One thing I can tell you for sure: if husband and wife get divorced, yeah. neither one, neither one, can have implantation. Husband cannot implant it in his new wife or girlfriend, and wife cannot implant it in her body, and and have the kids uh, that the husband doesn't want her to have. So in such a case, uh, either party has a veto. That is the law. But if one party died, it's less certain. It may very well be that husband will have power over the embryos because you don't have the other party around to contest it. Uh, yeah. Related, what if like the woman died, but before, like her dying was she wrote in the will, signed it, legally it's, like, American, legally it's acceptable. But what if she said, I want these to be used for a surrogate, I want these to be, to be well, legally it's viable, and I think even halakhically it would be viable, but again, yeah. let me just remind you, you'd have to follow all of the guidelines of surrogacy that we talked about, yeah. so if the surrogate was not Jewish, yeah. the child would need a conversion, yeah. and you can't use surrogate in, in, with a relationship what that would be incestuous. What if the dad died and said, like, use the embryo, my dying wishes for you to get pregnant with these embryos. <laughs> Uh, that's fine. That is fine, but that raises a lot of questions about post-mortem paternity. Maybe we'll talk about that too. Uh, that is actually okay. That's right. Uh, a wife can be impregnated with her husband's embryos or sperm, for that matter, even after the husband's death. The question becomes: Can a man acquire the status of a father after he's no longer alive? Uh, we'll talk about that. That's an interesting question. There's something recent about that. Yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll try to check it out. Yeah. Alrighty, I'll take care. Yeah. Oh, Chodesh Tov, good Chodesh. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm sure that you've been talking a lot.